Hi, how are you? <laughs> welcome here. Uh, really great to be together on this long weekend. Want to say a welcome to uh, all of our other sites, uh, Central Abbey, East Abbey, and of course, all those people we love more than anybody else, Mission Campus on the North Shore. Yes, right? Amen. Give them, a, give them an applause. That's awesome. Uh, so we are starting a new series of message called Foundations for Flourishing. But before we jump into that, uh, I get the opportunity to remind you once again, if you may have forgotten, uh, that we set aside the month of May uh, as an opportunity for you to pray about what God might want you to do as part of raising the money for our new worship center. So throughout the month of May, we've asked each one of you if you'd pick up one of these booklets, and if you haven't done so on the way out of the services today, uh, those will be available. If you could pick one of those up, uh, take them home, talk about it, pray about it. And what we've been asking is that if you call Northview your home church, so if you're visiting with us, just listen in. But uh, if this is your home church, if this is where you serve, it's where you're being equipped, it's where God uh, is pouring into your life, then we're asking you, would you consider what part might you want to play in these next three years as we build this building? If you don't know the details on it, uh, it's all in this booklet, uh, a project. We need about $5 million more in pledges and cash before we hit the trigger for construction. So that's really what we're looking at this month of May. And so what we've asked is that you would take these things home and pray about it, and then in the next 10 12 days uh, till the end of May that we would get these pledges back. And then the first weekend of June, we're going to have a major party and we're going to tell you everything that happened. That'll be exciting, right? Something to look forward to. Anyway, want to thank you. Uh, many of you have already put in your pledges, so thank you to those of you who have already. And for those of you who still been holding off, waiting for whatever reason, uh, encourage you to do that in the next few days. So pray, talk to your family, uh, and get those pledges back in. That would be awesome. Okay, uh, we are going to start this new series. So as I mentioned, Foundations for Flourishing. So you may or may not know uh, that 850 years ago, uh, 1173 another church started a massive building project. And they were commissioned to build a bell tower outside a beautiful cathedral that had already been completed 80 years earlier. But now they wanted to add a very high bell tower that it would be known all across the land. And so construction began, but sadly, only five years into the construction, this tower began to lean. It eventually would reach 183 feet tall, which is approximately about a 14-story building today. So if you can try to imagine a 14-story tower, that's how tall this building is. But by year five in construction, it was already leaning a bit. And what was the problem? Well, the foundation for this 183 feet tall building was only 10 foot deep, just 10 feet deep down into the soil. And the soil on which it was built was soft, shifting soil. Now, it's probably become the most famous bell tower in the entire world. I'm sure you have seen, and some of you may have had the opportunity to visit the Leaning Tower of Pizza. Pizza, yes, pizza. That's how I say it. It's pizza. There you go. But each of us, each of us are building a life, a life for ourselves and for our families, for our friends and our community, and it is innately true about every human being that there is a desire somehow within us for a good life. And you could call it, describe it, however you want to describe it, the blessed life, the flourishing life, the abundant life, but the human creature, men and women, boys and girls, are hungry for a sense of meaning and purpose and accomplishment in life, to know and be known, to love and to be loved, to, to know that our life matters to the people around us, to have a good, flourishing, abundant life, whatever word you might want to use. And there's a beautiful word picture that opens the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 says this, that blessed is the man 
whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And here's the picture. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. Now, our world at large might not use those words to explain or to express the desire, but the desire is innately in us. And so the question, of course, is, well, how do we get there? What is the foundation upon which we build a flourishing life? Now, some of you will remember that Jesus, uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he finished off that long sermon with these words. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now, if you're familiar with that text, Jesus goes on to say, and the rains came and the wind blew and the floodwaters rise, and one of those houses stood firm, but the other did not. So five weeks, a topical series. It'll be more teaching than preaching, really, in the, last, in the next five weeks. Foundations for flourishing, and we want to talk about weathering the storms of the culture that we find ourselves in, how we can live faithfully and speak into the issues that dominate the day that we live in, because every generation of Christians have been given the mandate to live out the gospel in the context that we find ourselves in. Every generation had to do that, and we must do it in our generation. And it would be no shock to anybody who's listening to this message on this weekend that there are major winds of culture that are blowing up against us, and specifically three major categories of conflict and debate and vitriol and anxiety, and I'll just mention them. Racism is one of them. And racism has been an ugly reality throughout all of human history. But with the rise in our generation of the so-called social justice movement, and critical race theory, the conversation has become radically charged, with some groups of people being demonized and other groups of people in a broad brush stroke being victimized. We are more divided now than ever, more alienated, confused, and frustrated in trying to live at peace with one another in this planet. Sanctity of life issues. Whether you're talking about beginning of life, abortion, or end of life, medical assistance in dying, the sanctity of life matters. And what does it mean to be a human? And how do we understand personhood and humanity? Are some lives inherently more valuable than other lives? Are they expendable? And then, obviously, human sexuality. A major issue in every generation, but in our generation as well. The challenge, however, in talking about these kind of topics is made even more difficult in our day because the rules of engagement have radically changed. The rules for having a, a conversation. Historically, because in our part of the world at least, there was a starting point that we assumed was the moral foundation for a conversation. North American society was overtly built on a theistic worldview. A worldview that acknowledged, whether we followed him or not, we acknowledged a sovereign authority. Uh, just take these examples. The U.S. Declaration of Independence. I know you are familiar with these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created, there it nods to the creator, equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, the foundation, the declaration 
of independence. O Canada, you may not know that the fourth verse of O Canada, which I have never ever heard sung at a public non-believing event, the fourth verse goes like this, ruler supreme, who hearest humble prayer, hold our dominion within thy loving care. Help us to find, O God, in thee a lasting rich reward as waiting for the better day we ever stand on guard. How many of you have ever sung verse four? Just a handful. How many of you didn't know that verse existed? Yeah, many, many more of you. You see, the laws of our land were written largely to reflect the principles of Scripture. And no honest historian will argue otherwise. But as we know, the days are rapidly changing and those era, that era is rapidly fading away. And we can either mourn it and long for some so-called good old days, or we can accept this reality reluctantly, or we can look at it as perhaps a potential opportunity for the people of God, a great opportunity for the people of God. So many of you will have heard the news that Dr. Tim Keller passed away Friday morning. And in that passing, we lost an amazing leader and a great voice for the gospel, a man who spent the last 34 years of his life arguing for the truth of the gospel in the secular heart of New York City, right on the island of Manhattan. Christianity Today's obituary opens this way. Tim Keller, a New York City pastor who ministered to young urban professionals and in the process became a leading example for how, now look at these words, for how a winsome Christian witness could win a hearing for the gospel even in unlikely places. When Tim and Kathy landed in New York City, New York City was less than 1% evangelical. They had an uphill battle ahead of them. In his book, Making Sense of God, he said these words. When people have religion imposed on them through social pressure, instead of choosing it freely, they often embrace it in a half-hearted or even hypocritical way. A truly secular state would create a genuinely pluralistic society and a marketplace of ideas in which people of all kinds of faith, including those with secular beliefs, could freely contribute, communicate, coexist, and cooperate in mutual respect and peace. Does such a place exist? No, not yet. It would be a place where people who deeply differ, nonetheless, Listen long and carefully before speaking. Over the next five weeks, we're going to talk about the foundations that we need in order to have these conversations. The foundations to flourish that putting in front of you the invitation and the challenge that you would consider the biblical worldview and all of its implications as the path, as the foundation for human flourishing. Now, many of you are familiar with the scriptures, and you will know in the Old Testament when God was setting out the law, the ceremonial law, the civil law, the moral law for the nation of Israel, build your life on these principles, that that promise came with a guarantee that it will go well with you. It is said eight times in the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter four says this, therefore you shall keep his statutes, his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you. Chapter five you shall walk in the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that it may go well with you. 
Deuteronomy 6, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you. You see a common theme? I'm giving you these rules, these laws, these principles, and other that you can flourish in your life. And the challenge, of course, is actually believing that and putting it into practice. Because every generation has somehow thought, ah, somehow these laws don't apply to us. Uh, There's got to be a caveat. There's got to be a loophole. There's got to be an exceptional clause here. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses finishes near the end with these words, Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. In other words, God's law doesn't apply for me. I see it, I hear it, I read it, but you know what? I'm the exception to the rule. I can disobey God's law and I can somehow still flourish and I can still be blessed. Every generation has had this challenge, do we believe these words? And so as we start this series, we start with the obvious implication, an overlooked assumption, and it is this, your starting point matters. Your starting point matters. When you are going to have a conversation around any of these issues, where you begin that conversation matters intensely. Because every conversation, we bring to it a set of assumptions, presuppositions, perspectives, largely the things that we have learned and been taught through our experience of life, what we have come to believe as true, what we have assumed And we call these things our worldview, how we look at the world around us. And we need a common language. We need a common language for conversation. We need rules of engagement, if you will. In fact, let me just illustrate it this way. Let's say, okay, we're going to have a conversation around any of these difficult issues. Can we please speak in English? And, And you might be like, don't be stupid. Don't be trite. Don't be trivial. But that assumption is... We're going to speak in a common language. And honestly, there are many people in our congregation who would say around such difficult subjects, I would prefer to have this conversation in my mother tongue. So could we not please speak in Spanish or French or German or Polish or Swahili or Punjabi? Could we not use one of those languages? But we're like, no, the majority language is English. And we're going to assume a common language. But the challenge is in English, and you know this, that words are being radically redefined. Are they not? Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Carolyn and I were part of a church finding network for many years. Part of that process was assessing couples who were listening to God's call, wondering whether they should plant churches or not. They came to a three-day assessment. They went through a number of exercises. They played some games so we could watch them. One of the games was a game called Blind Square. And so we would put the group of individuals, four couples, six couples, eight couples, so anywhere from eight to 14 people standing in a circle. They would be blindfolded, put in a circle, and a piece of rope that had been tied together so it was a full loop was placed on the ground in front of them, and they were told, now, stoop down, find that rope, blind, and put both hands on it, and now, as quickly as you can, form a perfect square. It was very interesting to watch, you know, the the vying for leadership in the circle who could yell the loudest because they're blindfolded. They can't give uh, uh, sight instructions. It has to all be verbal. And then eventually, when you think you have a perfect square, lay the rope down on the ground, take your blindfolds off, and see the result. It was quite entertaining, actually. 
But what was interesting through all those years and dozens and dozens of times of watching the blind square exercise, never ever once, not one time did those groups debate what is a square. No one had to debate what a square was. They all knew what it was and assumed common language. Today, however, words no longer mean what they once meant. And so as we start this series with two foundational pillars of the Christian faith, the first two weeks, the necessity for a God-shaped worldview, in other words, a theistic worldview, and then next weekend we're going to talk about the necessity for a biblically transformed mind, that how you think matters. So before we ever get to any of the hot-button topics of our culture, we need a theistic worldview and we need a biblically informed mind. Psalm 11 says this, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Foundations for flourishing. So today, we are going to look at the most basic building block of our Christian faith. The most basic building block is this, that we have knowingly and willingly and joyfully and expectantly embraced a theistic worldview. We have willingly said that God exists and that as our creator, he has every right to direct our daily lives because he is our creator. And and so we're going to anchor our discussion today in just one verse of scripture. In fact, just four words of scripture. How the Bible opens with these four words, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And those four words, as simplistic as they might sound to our ears inside the church, have an earth-shattering impact in a world of moral relativism and individual autonomy. And so we could break it into two parts, in the beginning, In the beginning, those words tell us a story. They imply what modern science continues to affirm that our universe, our world, did indeed have a starting point. That there was a time when this universe did not exist and it blew out, and scientists call it the Big Bang, into what we see and experience today, but that there was a time and place when all that we see around us did not exist. Well, the Bible assumes that very same starting point. And not just a beginning, but then you have to ask the question, well, then what was before the beginning? What happened before that event? Psalm 102, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. But then we go to Ephesians 1, and it says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. Now look at this, before the foundation of the world. God laid the foundations of the world, but he was already active doing stuff before the foundation. So before what we know as the created universe, God existed, or to use Jesus' own words in Revelation 22, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It was God who was there to build. He was there before. Uh, so back around Christmas time, we started singing a new song, and it's entitled Behold Him. The first verse goes like this, he who was before there was light. Very first line, he who was. 
the one who existed before creation, the one who was there before light existed, walked across the pages of time. He who made every living thing behold him. It's a beautiful song of worship. The one who was there before light was even there, lift up your eyes, behold him. Jesus, Messiah, Lamb of God, Messiah. It's a wonderful song. In the beginning, God. So the implications are massive. And the ramifications for the day and age in which we live, because the reigning mindset in our day, among cultural elites in particular, is that there is no God, and therefore there is no moral authority, no absolute moral authority. So Sharon James quotes a 2011 survey of young adults saying this, 60% of emerging adults interviewed express a highly individualistic approach to morality. They say, they've said that morality is a personal choice, entirely a matter of individual decision. Moral rights and wrongs are essentially matters of individual opinion. In their view, and in this world of moral individualism then, anyone can hold their own convictions about morality, but they must also keep those views private. Giving voice to one's own moral views is now itself nearly immoral. Interesting. Now the question, of course, is are they right? Are they right in saying that there is no moral authority beyond the autonomous self? If Genesis 1-1 is wrong, if in the beginning God was not, then we're free to navigate our own decisions. Either the universe was here by design or it is here by cosmic accident. But the Bible clearly and unapologetically is a theistic book espousing a creationist worldview in the beginning God. So let me just put a couple verses up. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all of their hosts. Isaiah 45, for thus says the Lord, which Lord? The Lord who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. And this is what that Lord says, I am the Lord and there is no other in the beginning God. And the challenge, however, with starting with the Bible, is that someone, and you will have friends who will say this to you, it's circular reasoning. How do you know that that Bible verse that you just read is true? Well, because God tells me it's true. It's God's word and it claims to be true. But how do you know the God of the universe exists? Because the Bible tells me he exists. But how do you know the Bible's true? Because God tells me it is true. Yes, it's circular reasoning. And so the conclusion and the key conclusion has to be this, that it is an unashamed confession that our worldview is a position of faith. But it is the exact same for every other worldview. The atheistic worldview is also a position of faith. But Hebrews 11 says this, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then verse 6 says this, without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so before we try to engage any discourse on the major conversations of our day, we have to settle this question first, what is our starting point? 
What source of authority are we going to base our conversation upon? And that question pushes us to a crisis of decision. It is our starting point. And either God exists and we are accountable to him or God does not exist. And we're free to choose our own path. So as we engage these conversations, we've got to start with that question. Does God exist? And for all the press that atheism gets in our day, it's, it actually represents a very small slice of the world population. I, I don't know if you knew this. Now, studies and exact numbers are, are, are nearly impossible to find so among 8 billion people. But some estimates say that there may be as many as 400 million atheists. Maybe, but we lump in agnostics and other irreligious people. So it's hard to know those who clearly identify as atheists, but maybe upwards to 400 million, which is just 5% of the world's population. Which means 95% at least give a nod or embrace the possibility of something transcendent. And it's interesting to show that the major, uh, majority of studies would say that the majority of atheists were actually formerly religious people who have walked away from some religious background. That is very fascinating. Formerly believed something and now they have chosen atheism. Why would they do that? Well, there's four common objections to theism. Four common objections to belief in God. There are rational objections. So you will hear people say things like, uh, re religion is just for primitive civilizations. You know, a thousand years ago when they didn't have science and education and technology like we have, they had to believe those myths, but we have outgrown those things. Rationally, we no longer need to believe these things. Or scientific objections. Some will say my scientific worldview keeps me from believing anything that I cannot prove empirically in the science lab. But quite honestly, most atheists object to theism more on the last two categories, moral and personal objections. I have some moral, ethical, sexual practices that I would rather not give up, and I'm not willing to submit to a God, so I therefore choose to believe he doesn't exist. I can't settle the issue of human suffering. How does an all-powerful, all-loving God allow suffering and evil in the world? And I can't work that out of my mind, and morally it offends me, so I'll choose to not believe in him. Or some just are personal objections. Religious people are weird. The ones I bumped into are kind of kooky. They're strange. They're ill-mannered. Some of them, I think, are unintelligent. And I don't want to be associated with those kind of people. Or, I used to be religious. But religious people deeply wounded me. And I left religion, I left the church as an act of self-defense. You will hear those kind of comments. I'm sure that every one of us in this room has bumped into people who express those kind of thoughts. In fact, there are some in the room. Every weekend, I know there are people who are asking these kind of questions, and I'm so glad you're with us. I'm so glad you're here, and I want to encourage you to continue to press in and ask those kind of questions, but they are very common. And so we got to move forward, and you say, well, are there also challenges to embracing atheism? If there are challenges to embracing theism, what are the challenges the other way around to embracing atheism? Well, there are numbers of them. 
And are we willing to ask the question, are we willing to challenge atheism as vigorously as we have challenged theism? So if you have a friend who is considering atheism over theism, ask them this question, are you willing to as vigorously challenge your belief in atheism as you are willing to critique my theism? Let me give you five questions. If there is no God, number one, the big questions of life are still left unanswered, even though there's no God. The questions of where did we come from? There's no answer for that. How did life animate out of inanimate matter? What existed before the Big Bang that scientists tell us about? Before the universe sprang into being, what was there? Does human life have any intrinsic value? The answers are still unanswered in atheism. No God, number two, rejecting God leaves us with a crisis of meaning. What is the meaning and purpose of life? What happens after we die? What do we do with this inner self of ours? This soul, this psyche, this mind, this conscience that we know is real, that we relate to one another, not just as physical beings, but we relate to each other psychologically and at a soul level. How do we grapple with that if there is no God? And we are left only with existentialist meaninglessness. If there is no God, number three, the evidence is in of the historic results being horrific. The evidence is in. Now, some of you who are a little older in the room, like myself, will remember a guy named John Lennon. Anybody remember him? And he very famously sang these words. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to imagine all the people living life in peace. Well, the challenge is we don't have to imagine. We don't have to imagine at all. All we have to do is look back in the last 100 years and allow the killing fields of the Khmer Rouge, the Nazi concentration camps, or Stalin's Gulag Archipelago speak for themselves. The results of an atheistic state are horrific. History is in. Number four, if there's no God, the problems of suffering and evil are not solved. Now, suffering and evil is one of the greatest objections people have against the Christian faith. How do you deal with an all-loving, all-powerful God who allows suffering? And it is a challenge to dig deeply into the scriptures to say, as Jesus suffered with us, we can bear through, and the sufferings of this present time are not worth the glory to be compared that we are going to one day experience. However, if there is no God, the question of suffering and evil are not solved either. Removing God from the equation does not remove human suffering. And so what comfort is there to give to a world that is suffering and is filled full of evil if there is no God? If we are simply pawns in some cosmic game of chess with no ultimate reason for living, what hope is there in that? And then finally, number five, if there's no God, we're left with no foundation for making moral decisions. There's absolutely no foundation for right or wrong. There are no categories for good or evil. How do you claim that something is good, bad, or evil, or indifferent if you have no moral foundation upon which to base it? Now, somebody in the room is going to say, I am still unconvinced. Or you might be thinking about a friend 
with whom you have these kind of conversations, and, and even if you can provoke them to vigorously examine their atheism, uh, they might say, are there rational reasons for me to consider theism, for me to consider the biblical worldview? And so let me give you six. Uh, there could be uh, many, many more than this, and, and these are not new to me. Uh, if you pick up any apologetic book in the world, you are going to read these six and many more. But I think these are the biggies, and I've stolen this list from Lee Strobel. Number one is the evidence for a beginning. Why should we consider the theistic worldview? Because modern science has concluded that there was indeed a beginning to our universe. The second law of thermodynamics say the universe is burning down from an original point of creation in time. What was before that question? There is evidence in science for a beginning. It's at least worth considering. Secondly, the fine-tuning of the universe... The odds that the intricacies of design, no matter what you look at, the human hand, the human eye, the human ear, the human body, or if you look at the plant and animal kingdom, and you look at the fine-tuning in the universe and say the astronomical odds that these things happen by chance are mathematically and rationally so impossible to believe that they demand an intelligent designer. The design is so clear, creation shouts at us, there is a God, there is a designer. If there's a watch, there's a watchmaker. Number three, the moral law. What humanity would call the conscience. Where does the conscience come from? Every person has one. Why is there an internal sense in every little child right up till the day we die, a deep-seated sense of right and wrong, some level of a moral code that is hardwired into us? If we are just products of an evolutionary process, where did this sense of right and wrong come from? The scripture says it's because we are made in the image of God. That the very image of God is stamped into the DNA of the human creature. Uh, number four is the origin of life itself. Where did life come from? So the evolutionary worldview would suggest biogenesis. That genesis, the beginning, came from the biosphere. The biogenesis that somehow life just emerged randomly over billions of years. That inanimate, unlife idols after uh, uh, items uh, after billions of years of stirring around the pot. That somehow life just randomly emerged and grew out of that. Does that make sense? The impossibility that animate life somehow miraculously, and yet we don't believe in miracles, sprang from inanimate life is very uncompelling. And then the fifth and sixth are interesting. The credibility of the Bible. And if you're talking with a friend who is considering theism or considering pushing away from atheism, you have to talk about the credibility of the Bible. This book is absolutely unique among all other books in the world, and we'll talk a little bit more about that next weekend. But the veracity of this book and the overwhelming historical and archaeological evidence for the trustworthiness of this book and the words that are in this book are absolutely astounding. You must at least consider it. And then finally... The resurrection of Jesus. The historical fact that is so well documented, over 500 eyewitnesses, no rational mind can ignore it except with a willful decision that says, I have chosen to simply disregard the historic record. 
Now, I fully realize in the next four weeks now, we're going to open a can of worms. Massive topics, weeks three, four, and five. And the goal is twofold. The goal is to challenge you to think deeply about these issues. And we're not going to solve them all, obviously, in about a 40-minute message. But to challenge you to study and to read and equip yourself. And, and hopefully each week we'll give you a few resources. On this particular topic, there are literally dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of books on this topic. Belief in theism versus atheism. I'm going to put up five that are really good. I've read these ones. There are many more. Lee Strobel's The Case for Faith. Keller's The Reason for God and Making Sense of God. Eric Metaxas, this is a new book just last year. Is Atheism Dead? A fascinating read. And then, of course, an old classic that if you haven't read it, you must read it, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. And if you're more into online applications, you want to listen to podcasts, and you want to watch videos, I can't think of a better resource than to point you to apologeticscanada.com. And Dr. Andy Steiger, who leads Apologetics Canada, actually attends Northview. He's part of our church, used to be on pastoral staff. He now leads Apologetics Canada. And I know that Andy himself personally would be willing to meet with you one-on-one -on -one and talk through questions you've got. But this website has an amazing number of resources. Each of us are building a life for ourselves, our family, our friends, and our community, and innately true about every single one of us, there is an internal desire for a good life. And you call it whatever you want to call it, the abundant life, the flourishing life, the blessed life. We want to enjoy pleasure. We want to avoid pain. We want to flourish. We want to know and be known. We want to love and be loved. We want to know that our life matters to somebody. And how do you build that life? What foundation will you start with? Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Hebrews eleven six, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. So we got to land the plane, obviously. You're like, it's about time, finally. Let me end with a couple questions. Have you chosen to believe in God or not to believe in God? Or put it this way, what have you chosen? What have you chosen to think about God? And if you have chosen to not believe, can I ask you a couple questions? Will you be intellectually honest enough to scrutinize your unbelief? And are you open to even considering that theism might be a viable choice for you? Are you open enough? But for the majority of people in our congregation on any given weekend, what have you done with God? The answer is, of course I believe in God. It's why I'm here, pastor. It's why I'm putting up with you. Answer this question, are you allowing then that foundation and that faith to translate into a radically transformed life? So as we talk about living out our lives as salt and light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, are you allowing your faith to change the way you live your life? Has your encounter with Jesus Christ changed every aspect of daily life? So as we go on to talk about racism, 
as we go on to talk about the sanctity of life from cradle to the grave, as we go on to talk about our sexuality, does your belief in God radically alter every single one of those areas? Are you willing to daily surrender your life to the loving leadership of King Jesus? And so as we close, I want to speak just specifically for a moment to anybody who's listening, who's with us this weekend, who is say, I'm curious, but I'm unconvinced. I'm interested, I'm open, but I am still filled with questions. Uh, There's a a prayer, and I I don't know where I first heard this, and I don't know if I made it up or somebody else, but the skeptic's prayer. And I would just simply ask you, if you're here and you're saying, you know what, I'm curious, but I'm unconvinced, would you be willing to pray a prayer, a skeptic's prayer, that goes something like this, dear God, I don't even know if I believe you exist. I don't even know if you're out there. I don't know if you can hear what I'm saying, but if you exist, would you show yourself to me in a way that I can know that you are real? And if you're here and you're saying, you know what, I'm unconvinced, but I am open, I would encourage you, pray a prayer like that. Dear God, if you exist, would you show yourself to me in a way that I can understand? And I can guarantee you he will because the scriptures say everyone who seeks the Lord will find him. He will be found by you. But there are others. And I know, and we talk to people in conversations and often it happens in baptism classes that we, we talk about their testimony and coming to faith in Christ. And someone this weekend might say, you know what? I'm done my reading. I'm done my questioning. I know that I will never have every question answered, but based on what I know so far, I'm convinced of the claims of this book and I am ready to place my faith in Jesus. And I would encourage you to pray a prayer, something like this, Lord, today's the day I'm drawing a line in the sand. After all these years of searching and debating and arguing and wondering, I'm ready to do what Hebrews 11 says I have to do. I'm ready to come to you in simple faith, believing that you exist. I'm ready to turn my life over to you. I'll repent of my sinful, willful rebellion against you, and I will gladly receive the gift of life you offer me through Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Today, I choose to follow you. And I hope that there are people, even this weekend, who will pray a prayer like that. So would you stand together with me? I want to pray for each one of you. We'll sing some songs. We'll be on our way. Foundations for Flourishing. Lord Jesus, I know that it is true for every individual in our services this weekend that innately in the human soul is this desire that we don't even know how it got there. It is just in us from the earliest childhood right up through our oldest of years that we desire to live a good life. We desire to enjoy every day of life that you have blessed us with. We, we call it various things, the flourishing life, the abundant life, the good life. It is just innately in us. It is a human desire, and we see it in the world all around us. It is a common characteristic around the globe, some 8 billion people on the planet. Every single one of them wants to flourish. But Lord, the question is, how do we get there? And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would awaken us that you would open our eyes again anew and afresh, remind us, remind us, remind us that the path to life is the path of knowing you as Lord and Savior, knowing you as our creator, knowing you as our sustainer, knowing you, Holy Spirit, as the one who carries along and helps us in our daily life, and then longing for that day when we one day stand before you and this creation is made anew, and that truly will be the abundant life. And meanwhile, Lord, I pray for men and women in our congregation, for boys and girls in our congregation who've got questions. 
I know they're with us every weekend. And so, Lord, I pray even this weekend, Holy Spirit, would you begin to answer those questions one by one? Would you put good people in their lives? Would you put good resources in their hands? And most of all, Father, would you give them a willing heart, a willing heart to explore and to ask these questions unto your glory and our great joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.